It's my very great pleasure now to um, introduce you to Nancy Guthrie. So let's give Nancy the warmest welcome that we can. Nancy, you're very, very, very welcome. I feel welcome. Yes, uh uh-huh. And I see you've got your Irish green on this morning. You like it? Uh Uh-huh. Have you noticed that, ladies? Um, did you have a good sleep last night? Oh, so good, man. They put, you guys put me at this Europa Hotel. That's the cushiest bed I've ever slept in. I could have slept all day. Yeah. We aim to please. Nancy, is this your first time in Ireland? It is. It is. I've been to Scotland a few times about 10 years ago. Uh And about a year and a half ago, I came over into England for the first time. But this is my first time to Ireland, Northern Ireland. And all my friends are so jealous. I, I put a picture of, of the, where we're meeting today on my Facebook page yesterday. All these people were saying, you know, can I be your assistant? Can I be your assistant? <laughs> All assistants are welcome. They don't seem to want to be my assistant when I'm back home. <laughs> tell us a little bit about back home. You come from Nashville in Tennessee. I do. So tell us a wee bit about Nashville. I met one woman this morning who's been to Nashville. Anybody else? Maybe a few, yeah? Nashville's right in the middle of the country. They call it Music City. It is yeah. Music City. In, in fact, you guys seem to be sending some of your musicians to Music City uh, lately. Uh, we we took your uh, Kristen and Keith Getty uh, into Nashville, where they live, and we are friends with them. So oh, that's lovely. fun. Yeah. Excellent. Now tell us, um, Nancy, what kind of thing takes up your working week, most of your working yeah. week? Yeah. Well, both my husband David, my husband David's here with me, and we both work from home. David runs a children's music publishing company. He publishes kids' music, uh, kids' musicals for the church. And so that's all from home. All the stuff is in our garage. And, uh, and then I work from home. I spend most of the week uh, writing and preparing for times like this. Um, but pretty much every day I try to slip away and go walk in. The, we live adjacent to a big, beautiful park in Nashville, Got wonderful friends. We text and say, let's meet at the park. And we go and walk through the park and share life and pray together and uh, enjoy God's beauty there. Fantastic. Well, when you're not working, I know you go for walks. Is there Mm -hmm. anything else that you love to do to Mm. relax and unwind? Mm. Well, I do love being with friends. That's for sure. Um, I love my church family. Mm -hmm. Uh, I miss them. Miss last week and will miss tomorrow. Um, I'm not a big, I'm not a great cook. Actually, here's what my husband said to me one time. He said, honey, it's not so much that you're not a good cook. It's just that you have a very small repertoire. (laughs) That's good. As long as the repertoire is nice, that's fine. (laughs) Anyway, we'll maybe send her back with a few tray bake recipes. (laughs) I might need that. Nancy, I'm going to pray for you and hand over to you now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our sister Nancy and we thank you for protecting her and for bringing her safely to us. And we thank you for the wonderful gift of teaching that you've blessed her with. And we ask now that you will give her freedom and that you will empower her by your Holy Spirit to speak your life-changing, hope-giving words to our needy hearts. May you be glorified, Jesus, in all that she says. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, I am so grateful to be with you today. Thank you for coming. Some of you I know came so far. And so uh, I'm grateful you would do that. And I hope you have come hungry for God's word. Hope you wake up every day hungry for God's word, knowing that man and woman does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So I've come to share with you today, but... um, Really hoping the one you hear most speak to you today is God himself from his word. Um, A number of years ago, my husband David and my son Matt, who was three at the time, we were sitting around our house on a Saturday morning having breakfast and we looked out the window and I mean, we could hear these helicopters flying very low over our neighborhood, which seemed really strange. And we we looked out the window and we saw this gray smoke billowing from evidently from our neighborhood. Our first thought was, gosh, did one of those helicopters crash or something? The smoke was so dark. So David uh, went out the front door and he went a couple cul-de-sacs away where there was a house in our neighborhood that was on fire. 
And he was standing there when the family who owned the house, they had left for just like 30 minutes and they drove back and their house had been completely destroyed by fire. So he, he saw them have that experience and he came back to our house somewhat sobered by what he had seen. I think sometimes when you see something like that, aren't you like this, that you think to yourself, wow, what would I do if that happened to me? How would I respond if I drove up and the house I had just left was just gone? Um, I think one reason I was thinking that that day was because I had read a story that week, a story that I know I had read before, but somehow that week it had impacted me more than ever before. And it's the story we're looking at today, the story of this ancient man who seems somewhat modern to us at times when we read a story. And the story of this man who's sitting at home one day and a series of messengers come first telling him that everything he owns has been destroyed. And then another messenger that nearly everyone he loves has died. And then later he's stricken with painful sores all over his body and When I read that story a couple weeks before the neighbor's house burned down, I just remember thinking to myself, as I, as I looked at that and I saw how he responded, I wondered to myself, I wonder how I would respond if something like that happened to me. I wonder how I would respond when maybe the worst thing I could imagine happened to me. Well, it was a couple of weeks later, Uh, that I went to the hospital and gave birth to a daughter that we named Hope. And when Hope was born, she had club feet. And the OBGYN who delivered her said, well, don't worry about that because, uh, you know, we can put casts on those feet right away and take care of that. He said, but I do think you're going to want to have the pediatrician take a good look at her when he gets here. That night, he came to our hospital room, and he had a little sheet of paper in his hand on which he had made a list of what he called a number of little things that weren't quite right with Hope. Um, She had a really large, soft spot. She had kind of a flat chin and extra skin on her neck. She was very lethargic. She wasn't moving much. She wasn't holding her temperature. She wasn't crying much. Um, Her hands turned slightly out... And the pediatrician said, you know, a lot of times when we see a number of little things that are wrong, they add up to something more significant. And so I want to have a geneticist from Vanderbilt Hospital come and examine her tomorrow. So he came the next day and he came to our hospital room that night and he told us that he suspected Hope had a rare metabolic disorder called Zellweger syndrome. Now, we had never heard of that and probably most of you haven't either. He explained that what that meant was Hope was missing a tiny subcellular particle that you and I have in every cell of our bodies, a little enzyme called peroxisomes. And the best way I know how to understand it is peroxisomes are kind of like the cell's trash man. And they have one kind of trash that they're responsible for taking out of the cells, and that's long-chain fatty acids. And so he explained that basically because there was nobody to take out the trash, that these long-chain fatty acids would build up in all of Hope's cells um, and become toxic. And that, in fact, a lot of damage had already been done to all of her major organs, especially her liver and her kidneys and her brain. He told us that there was no treatment and no cure. And that most children with that syndrome live less than six months. I look back at that moment in a sense of that was when my world began to fall apart. Uh, Our son Matt was eight at the time. And I'd so looked forward to having a daughter. A daughter who would look like me and talk with her hands like me and grow old with me. I remember David uh, crawled up into the bed with me and we cried. And we cried out to God. Probably the most unceremonious prayer we'd ever prayed was just, God help us. We don't know what to do. So he stayed there in the hospital 
for a week, we were learning how to feed hope with a tube. And as we waited the anticipated onset of seizures and we began to accept the bitter realities of her condition, which left her unable to see or hear or respond, we began to grapple with the fact that her life would be very short and very difficult And during that time, I went back to the book of Job. I wanted to look more closely at this man and how this godly man, Job, how he was able to lose so much and question God boldly in the midst of his loss and yet emerge from this loss with a life that was described as good. Because honestly, at that point, I thought, my life will never be good again. I wonder if there are some of you here who know what I'm talking about when I talk about a day when I sensed that my world had begun to fall apart. I wonder if you have a day that you could look back on and say, that was the day that my world began to fall apart. Maybe... It was the day you discovered your husband was having an affair or the day your marriage ended. Perhaps it was the day that you began to believe that in fact some of your dreams for marriage might never come true. Maybe it was the day your child turned away from faith, turned away from you. Maybe it was the day you got the diagnosis that was so difficult the day that financial loss robbed you of of your future security. Maybe it was the day you stood by the grave, said goodbye to someone that you love. And if so, you understand why I felt so desperate to come to understand Job's secret. You know, when we think about Job, we usually think primarily about him as a sufferer, about his suffering. You know, when I read the book of Job and it ended saying, and Job died having lived a long, good life. And I just remember thinking to myself, I wouldn't call that a good life. That's not the kind of good life that I am interested in. So how was it that Job's life could be described as good? Let's seek to figure that out today as we look together at his story. We're going to cover his story over three sessions. In this first session, we're going to look at Job's initial response to suffering. In our second session, we'll consider the questions that Job and his friends asked in the midst of loss and in his darkest days, some of the questions we answer, ask, and want to have answered And then in our final session, we'll listen in as God himself speaks to Job and responds to him. And we'll discover how our suffering can change us so that we too could emerge from our suffering with a life that's described as good. So open up your Bibles if you haven't already to the book of Job. The way I find Job is open up in the center and you usually end up in Psalms and go one book before that and there's Job. So find Job chapter 1 if you would. I find it interesting the way the writer of the book of Job begins this book. I'm going to read his, he introduces us to this person named Job. And as we read it, I want you to think about why would the writer of this book be telling this about this person, Job? We begin in chapter one, verse one, we read in the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. And this man was blameless and upright He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. He had a large number of servants. And he was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. 
So he says here that Job is the greatest man in all the East, and that makes me want to ask the text back a question. What is it that made him great? Well, first of all, we see he was a great man morally. Verse 1, they are said that he is blameless, upright. He shunned evil. Now, we might be tempted to think that it's trying to say that Job never sinned, but of course, that's not the case. But it does seem to be the case that he didn't live a life marked by ongoing sin. He he doesn't chase after sin. He doesn't settle into sin. He doesn't take it lightly. He This is a man who loved what God loves and hates what God hates. I think that's the distinctive mark of a truly great person, don't you think? He's a great man morally. He's a great man personally. Seven sons, three daughters. I mean, seven's the perfect number. This is a guy who has the perfect family. Do you know anybody like that? Job is a great man uh, financially. 700 sheep, 300 camels, 500 oxen, 500 donkeys, large number of servants. In our terms, we would say he lives at the best address. He's got one of the nicest houses in town, and he eats at the best restaurants. He's got plenty of money in the bank. Everything seems to be going really well for him. But he's also a great man spiritually. We read that he feared God. You know, Job didn't have the whole Bible like we do, and yet somehow God had revealed himself to Job Job seemed to know enough about himself to know that he was a sinner. And he seemed to understand that a blood sacrifice is needed to cover and atone for sin. Evidently, Job's knowledge of God's holiness made him very sensitive to sin. And did you notice he's not only considered, concerned about his own sin... He's concerned about the, that perhaps his children have sinned. And so we read that after they have a big birthday celebration every year, he goes early in the morning to offer a sacrifice. Now, I don't know about you. I kind of think anything I do early in the morning is a sacrifice. <laughs> his concern is about their hearts. He says maybe... Maybe everything's all right with them on the outside. They're, they're looking very pious and good on the outside, but maybe they have cursed God in their hearts. And so he has offered a sacrifice on their behalf. Okay, so we're introduced to this man. The writer wants us to know he's a great man, a godly man. Why does he want us to know that? What difference does that make? in regard to what we're going to learn about Job. I think it's because we have a sense that if we are good and godly, then we won't have to suffer. Do you ever find yourself saying or hear someone else saying something, some great sense of suffering comes to someone and our instinct is to say about them, well, she really doesn't deserve that. Why do we say that? Because we have this sense, you know, someone is really a good person, someone who's a godly person. I mean, shouldn't they be the last person? Shouldn't they be someone who is spared from, haven't they earned a relief exemption from suffering from God? And yet, as we're going to look at the story of Job, we're going to discover that goodness and godliness is no guarantee that you won't have to suffer. You know, I hear from a lot of people going through loss, and I can't tell you how often they will come to me and say something like, we did everything right. Uh, We're active in our church. We pray together as a family. We waited until we got married to have sex. And so... Why has God allowed this to happen to us? And it reveals that there's a part of us, maybe we've never said it out loud, but we all have what we think is the equation for the way life should work with God. And I think it adds up something like this, something like um, my spiritual intentions and my good behavior plus 
a God who is powerful and good and love a God who loves me, those things are going to add up for me for a life in which I am spared from significant suffering. And yet God never promises that we wouldn't have to suffer. So we've met Job, this key character in the story. There's another key character in the story that we're introduced to here in the first chapter. This one called Satan or the Satan. And so as we are introduced to Satan, I want you to think about this question. What is it that Satan really wants? Okay, let's meet him. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you noticed, have, have you considered, have you taken a close look at my servant Job? Because there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But Satan is clearly skeptical. Verse 9, he says, are you kidding, God? Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But God, if you were to stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, he's saying, I know what's really inside Job's heart. He's saying, he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has, notice the limitation, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. And we're going to see when we come back to, the, to, to chapter 1 that Satan does touch everything he owns. But let's skip ahead to the second scene where we are introduced to Satan, learn a little bit more about him in chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with him to present himself before him. Notice he has to answer to God. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. God, if you stretch out your hand and you strike his flesh and bones, he will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan comes before God. He's been roaming around the earth. Why is he doing that? He's looking for something. What's he looking for? He's looking for an opportunity. An opportunity to prove himself more powerful than God. Because you see, Satan wants to be worshipped as God. And interestingly, it's God who brings up Job's name. Why? Evidently, Job has quite an impressive track record of faithfulness to God in all of his years of blessing and success. And don't you think it's true that sometimes incredible success can be as much of a test of our faithfulness to God as incredible suffering? Yet in the midst of all this success and blessing, Job has stayed humble before God. And yet... Satan thinks that Job is in a relationship with God, that he blesses God and is fears God only because God has given him so many good things. But do you see the insult in God, toward God being implied here? He, what Satan is really saying is, you know, God, you are not really worth being loved for just who you are. You see, Job only loves you for what he can get from you. 
And the truth is, God, if you were to take away all of these blessings that you've given him, he wouldn't love you. In fact, he would curse you to your face. That's exactly what Satan wants to see happen. You see, Satan recognizes, ladies, that if we are in a relationship with God only for what we can get from him, then at the first sign that we're not getting from him what we thought he was there to supply to us, that we will turn away from God in resentment. You know, if you came to Christ because someone sold you salvation as a way to, in a sense, uh, manage life, get God on your team to manage and get everything you want in this life in the here and now, if that's what sold you on salvation, I, I think that probably the first sign you see you're not that's not happening, then you will turn away from what you have called faith. But clearly this is not the way that Job thinks. He, he doesn't see it as God's job to protect him from harm or preserve his comfortable life. And here's what I find interest, most interesting in this as we're introduced to Satan. But can I also admit to you, I find it incredibly troubling. And I wonder if you do too. Because... Satan comes to him, he is asking permission from God to harm Job. And God grants him the permission. Does that trouble you? (laughs) You kind of want to say, come on, God. Certainly you would say no. But did you also notice that God set the parameters? He's like, he's, he's saying to Satan, yes, You can bring suffering into his life, but you can only go this far, right? So the first time Satan comes to him, he says, as far as you can go is, is you can, uh, you can take everything he has, right? That's as far as you can go. But then Satan comes back to him the second time. He extends the parameters. He says, okay, this time you can touch his body. But once again, he says, but you can't take his life. You cannot take his soul. (laughs) I wonder how that hits you. I mean, it just doesn't fit in with our understanding of a loving, protecting God. But isn't it interesting to notice that Satan has to come to God to ask permission to harm Job and that God does set the parameters. You see, Satan wants power from God. Satan has to ask permission because get this, Satan has no power that has not been extended to him by God. Be willing to think deeply here with me. We think about God and Satan and we think, okay, God is powerful and Satan has power, but we think, okay, God is more powerful than Satan, so surely he will win. But here's the bigger, deeper truth is that Satan has absolutely no power that has not been granted to him by God. That's how sovereign God is over the universe that we live in. And that is how limited Satan is in the world that we live in. Although at this point in time, Satan has been extended a very long leash. He is on a leash held by God's own hand. And the day is going to come, we read about it in Revelation, when that leash is going to be taken in and he will be done with for good. But let's ask the question, what is it that Satan wants to do with this power? Ultimately, what is he after? Let me tell you what he's after in Job's life as well as your life. You see, Satan wants to drive a wedge between God and Job. Satan wants to alienate Job from God. That's the big drive. That's the big goal behind this whole big story of the book of Job. It's the big question that's being asked all the way through the book to the very end. The big question is, will Satan succeed in alienating God from Job? Lady, Satan wants to alienate you from God. 
and he will use whatever means possible to accomplish that goal and a tool he often uses, evidently because it's found it's, it's often quite successful. A tool that he often uses to alienate you from God is suffering. So will Satan succeed? Will Job become angry and resentful toward God for God falling down on the job? Will, will Job walk away feeling like a f- total fool that he ever put his trust in God in the first place? Or will Job respond quite differently? Will he respond in a way that puts Satan in his place and gives God the glory that he deserves? And is it possible that this, this tool of suffering that Satan intends to use to drive a wedge and alienate Job from God, is it possible that this tool in the hands of God could actually be used to accomplish something quite different? That it could actually be used to draw Job closer to God? rather than alienate him from God. And is it possible that the suffering in your life could actually be used by God to draw you closer to him, rather than used by Satan as a wedge to push you away from him? Well, let's look and see how Job responds as he Nearly everything he owns and everyone he loves is abruptly ripped away from him. I'll read quickly through chapter 1 as we see what happened to him. We read in verse 13, One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job, said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked, it's a terrorist attack, and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. It's a natural disaster. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off, but the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. And then we read in verse 20, At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. So the first way that we see Job responding to this loss is that he openly mourned. He was sad. And he wasn't ashamed or afraid to show everyone the depth of his sorrow. Out of the deepest kind of agony and loss, he openly mourned. I wonder if some of you in this room, I know some of you in this room, know what it's like not to just feel sorrow, but to groan with sorrow. You know, part of being human is that when you lose something or someone who is valuable to you, it hurts. You mourn. You agonize over that loss. There's nothing wrong with that. Our daughter Hope was with us for 199 days. We loved her. We enjoyed her. She brought so much richness to our life. She woke us up in so many ways. We cared for her. We celebrated her. We held her during her seizures. We shared her with everyone we could. And then we let her go. And the only way I know how to explain what it was like in those days after putting her body in the ground was to say it was like there was a boulder. I always felt like there was this heavy boulder sitting on my chest, like it was pressing the life out of me. And like I was always struggling to catch my breath. 
And it was only normal that people would come up to me and they would say, you know, how are you? And quite often, my answer to them was simply, I'm just so sad. I'm just so sad. But of course, sadness is kind of awkward, isn't it? People come up and they say, how are you? They really want to hear that everything's great. And when our sadness comes out in tears, sometimes that's extra awkward. People don't know what to do with those. So how does a godly person respond to loss? I think with tears. That tears don't in fact represent a loss of faith or a lack of faith. In fact, I think tears are something that God uses to wash away wash over the deep ache and broken places in our soul so that he can do a work of healing. You see, strong faith doesn't minimize how much loss hurts. But it does, in the midst of loss, magnify how good God is, how sufficient God is to meet us and empower us in the midst of the hurt. What faith does is infuse us with a longing and a confidence that the day is coming. When God himself, by his very own hand, I don't completely understand it, but I believe it, says that he will wipe away our tears. That means our tears matter to him. It's not going to be an impersonal ending to the sufferings of this life. He's going to wipe them away. But of course, there is more here to Job's initial response to loss than just tears of agony. We read the rest of that verse in verse 20. Then he fell to the ground in worship. I got to tell you, that's the part of this story. When I read it shortly before hope was born, that I thought, I just don't get that. I mean, I can think of lots of ways I might respond initially, I said, to incredible loss. I don't think it would be falling to the ground in worship. So what's with that? I mean, how, how could he do that? I've come to think that with Job, that inside him was such a deep and genuine fear and reverence for who God is that it's what just naturally came out. You know, if I prick my finger, what comes out? Anybody? Yes, you're with me. You know, Job, you know, what comes out is what's inside. And for Job, when he was not just pricked, he was pierced to the very core with sorrow. What came out was worship. That's what was inside him, a, a great love for God. Now, but I also have to admit that in the midst of my loss, I found worship to be a big struggle, especially Going, gathering with God's people to worship. Because when I went to church, we would sing all of these songs that I have sung my whole life, but then after the loss, they sounded different. Can anyone relate to that? Things you would always say, you know, all of these songs about I'm going to trust God and He's so good and you do good to me and I'm going to love you for the rest of my life. I'd always sung them before, and frankly, it just didn't cost me anything to say it. But then afterward, it cost me something. But here's the thing. It was when I went to worship and to hear God's word, I brought in the reality of my loss. That's where it met up with the reality of who God is, which is what I needed most to hear. And the reality of who God is got the final word Instead of my feelings. You see ladies. We worship. Job resolved to worship God. Regardless of his feelings. And you and I worship. Because God is worthy. That's why we worship. We worship because he's worthy. Of worship. Not because we feel like it today. But here's the amazing thing. When we worship God. Because he's worthy. We discover in the process that God does a work to change our feelings. When we worship, we get our eyes. 
you know, we come into worship and our thoughts, our hearts are just all on our circumstances and all that's going on. But see, then when we lift up our eyes and we look at who God is and what he's done, what it does is it puts our circumstances into proper perspective. We can then see them rightly. So what is it that Job says in his worship? Look at verse 21. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Here it's obvious that Job recognizes that he is a recipient of God's gifts. The Lord has given and he's not just a recipient, he is a steward of God's gifts. Uh, my husband David stayed home with our daughter Hope on Wednesdays during her life so that I could go to Bible study. And I remember coming out of Bible study one Wednesday morning and calling home to see how things were. And David didn't answer the phone. And I thought that was kind of strange. And so I called his mobile and he answered. And uh, he answered the phone and the first thing he said was, we're all fine. Now, you know when someone answers saying we're all fine. We're not all fine, right? He said, uh, we're at Dr. Ladd's office, our pediatrician, but we're not here for hope. Uh, He said, Matt, who was our second grader at the time, Matt fell in PE this morning and broke off his front tooth. Well, I just had to pull the car over to the side of the road. I think because it hit me in the area of my greatest fear. And that was that hope might not be our only loss. I remember getting home that night. David and I were standing in the kitchen. We were talking about it. We realized that we had both made kind of an unspoken arrangement with God. That was something like, okay, God, we will accept losing hope and all that that entails. But that's it for us. That's our like. We'll do this one big suffering thing, but that's like our dose of suffering, all that we'll have to endure. I mean, if we accept this one, this means that for us there's no cancer, no car accidents, no financial collapse. (laughs) And we just had to kind of laugh as we said it out loud and gave voice to this unspoken agreement, realizing that Everything we are and everything we have and everything we love, it's all a gift from him. That we are his, we belong to him. And he can do anything with us that he wants to do. We, everything we have, everyone, we are stewards of what has been trusted to us. We had to realize that hope was a gift. A gift we were to steward, but that she really belonged to the Lord. And the proper response to a gift, it's not grasping after the gift. It's not greed for more. Instead, the proper response to a gift is gratitude. That's what we see in Job. Though he's already lost so much, there is is more suffering in store for him. Look with me in chapter 2, beginning of verse 7. Remember that Satan came back a second time and had said, well, I want to touch his body, skin for skin. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die, please. And he replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? So Job seems to reject the assumption that because he belongs to God, that he shouldn't have to suffer. He seems to expect that God will bring into his life both good things and bad things, which is really in very sharp contrast to our expectation today. I mean, we really think if he's a good God, then he's going to bring into my life what I would describe as good things. Yet suffering shouldn't surprise us. We should expect to suffer in this life. 
Remember how Paul says to him that the greatest aim of his life would be to to know Christ, to share in his sufferings. That's presented to us as the aim of the Christian life. And yet we so easily think if we're doing this life with God thing right, then we won't have to suffer. I mean, but let's think for a minute about some of the most significant people in the Bible. Dare I say godly people in the Bible. Let's think about that first man that God called to himself. He's called in the scriptures a friend of God. Well, if you're a friend of God, it seems like he'd use his power to keep you from suffering. But what do we know about Abraham's experience? We know that day came when God called him to march that beloved son who'd brought so much joy to his life, Isaac. He tells him to march him up a mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. Imagine the agony of Abraham as he considered that possibility those three days before God provided a substitute. Or think about this other big character in the Old Testament, David. And what does the Bible call him? He is a man, what? After God's own heart? I mean, if he is, and that really means he's, he's the kind of man that God hearts, that God loves, right? Well, if he's that kind of guy, surely God would keep him from suffering. Yet what do we know about David's life? I mean, imagine his suffering as he's running from cave to cave, trying to escape the murderous spear of Saul, even though he's actually been anointed as king. But imagine the deeper agony, I think, much later when his own son has betrayed him and is trying to kill him to rob him of the kingship. So that's the Old Testament. Let's think into the New Testament. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, which would be John the Baptist. We read about John the Baptist that when Jesus looks up and sees him walking toward him, Jesus calls him the greatest man ever born of a woman. Well, if Jesus himself says that about him, surely he would protect him from suffering. And yet we know the way John the Baptist's life ends. He's there in prison and he's wondering at this point, is Jesus really the promised Christ? And of course, we know that his life ends with his head being chopped off and presented on a platter. But if we're going to think about the godly people in the Bible who certainly don't deserve to suffer, certainly we have to turn and we have to look at the person in the scriptures we see who was the most innocent person who ever lived, who suffered more physically and spiritually and emotionally than any person who ever lived. And that is Jesus himself. I mean, if if we're going to say that if you're godly, you shouldn't have to suffer, it kind of gets messed up right there, doesn't it? So if all of these people in the scripture suffered, if Jesus himself suffered, why is it that we think we shouldn't have to suffer? Well, finally, as we look at Job's response to incredible suffering, we read uh, at the end of verse 10 in chapter 2, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. I said earlier that this is the big question the whole book hinges on. Will he curse God in the midst of his suffering? And we discover here that Job has refused to blame God and become bitter. We discover that Satan's aim, his purpose in all of this, has been frustrated by Job's godly response to suffering. Ladies... It's a lie from Satan that you have every reason and complete freedom to become and stay angry with God when bad things happen to you. You don't. You'll be tempted, but you don't have to give in to that temptation. Now, Am I saying when I say that, that you shouldn't be honest with God when you feel anger in the midst of incredible losses? I'm not saying that. 
Not at all. Am I saying that you will never feel angry? No, I'm not saying that. Here's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as you work through your feelings of anger in the midst of loss, and most importantly, as you inform your feelings with the truth of Scripture in the midst of loss, you refuse to become and remain an angry woman. You may feel some anger, but you don't have to become angry. You see, genuine faith is revealed when we hold on to and take hold of what is true about God. When we suffer, we refuse to point a finger in the face of God and say, You have not done right by me. I don't deserve this. You are not good if you could allow this to happen to me. And I want to ask you, rather than allowing anger to have a grip on you, now, would you take hold of the promises of God, of the purposes of God in your suffering, like your life depends on them? Because it does. What true thoughts about God did Job take hold of in the midst of his loss that made all the difference that you and I could also take hold of? Because it is this hope that gave him what he needed to respond in the way he did to so much loss. And we see it much more clearly later on in the book, when at the lowest point of despair, Job's faith actually seems to be its strongest. It's what he says in Job 19. He says, but as for me, here's what I know. Here's the truth I'm going to take hold of. The hope I'm going to take hold of. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives And that one day he's going to stand upon the earth and after my body has decayed, yet in my body I'm going to see God. You see, the hope that Job held on to in the midst of loss is that God is a redeemer. He redeems broken things. He is able to take what is broken And make it actually quite beautiful. Job is convinced that God is going to take the rubble in his life and make something good and beautiful about it. He's also convinced that God is going to redeem all things. He says that the day is going to come when he's going to stand on the earth. We know Jesus did come and stand on the earth, our Redeemer. And yet we know he is going to do so again. And that's ultimately what Job is putting his hope in. He says, and after my body has decayed, basically after I have died and left this life and my body is in the grave, yet in my body I will see God. You see, he's put his hope in God's resurrection promises that God is one day going to renew all things. That's where he's placing his hope. Job is holding on to hope by taking hold of the Redeemer in the person of Jesus Christ. Now the thing is, for Job, he couldn't see it as clearly as we can. You see, Job looked forward into the future for the coming of a Redeemer who would accomplish his redemption. He didn't know how that would happen. He couldn't see the cross clearly from his viewpoint. But you and I can. You see, as Job looked forward into the future for the Redeemer to come and accomplish redemption on the cross and put his faith in it and thereby was saved, you and I, from this side of the cross, we look back at it. We look back at the cross and the redemption that was accomplished there and we put all of our hopes, all of our faith in it, and thereby we are saved. That's how salvation is is accomplished. And I just want to ask you today, have you ever genuinely taken hold of that hope in the person of Jesus Christ? Have you really? Because I'm not asking, have you gone to church? I'm not asking, were you baptized or catechized or whatever eyes? 
Have you taken hold of hope by taking hold of the person of Jesus Christ? Because you see, that's what hope is. Hope, hope's not just an attitude about the future. It's not a philosophy about life that says everything's going to turn out okay. Hope is a person. The living person of Jesus Christ. So to take hold of hope is to take hold of him. Have you done that? I want to close this first message by just telling you a little story that illustrates what I'm talking about. A number of years uh, ago, I went to speak at a women's conference in Texas that was being held at what was usually a youth camp. And I got there a little bit late. My flight had been late. And when I got there, all the women had gone out in this big field to get in line to ride the zip line. Have you done that? Any who, Who's done? Who's written the brave souls? Not many of you. Well, do you know what this is? So this is a picture of the zip line that was at that camp. You can see that on one end of a field was this tower, five stories high. And from that tower ran cables, three cables, to another tower just like that. About two football fields away was another tower like that. So you would climb that tower and you would step into these belts and harnesses around you and hook yourself to that cable and ride from one one, uh, tower to the other. So I got out there and all of these women from the conference I was speaking at, they'd gotten in line to ride the zip line. And so I I got there and they said, so you going to ride the zip line? I was like, of course, yeah. Uh, I didn't really want to, but I kind of thought, well, I want them to think I'm cool and everything. So yeah, I want them to like me. So yeah, I'm going to ride the zip line. So I'm waiting in line with them and we start up that tower. I get partway up. I'm not real big on heights. And as I'm getting up a little higher, I'm beginning to think to myself, you know, I have been a real champ waiting in line with them all of this time. And so maybe I'll just let them ride and I'll go back down and meet them at the other side because I'm not so sure I really want to do this. But then I thought, oh, I can just hear him, them as I'm walking around, you know, making my way down like the salmon that's going the wrong direction and... Somebody says, what's up with her? And they go, oh, that's our speaker. She's so lame. And so I thought, well, (laughs) I'm going to have to do this. And so I got up to the top. I'm looking for some reassurance. And I see that on the wall is this, I don't know if that you do this in here. You probably do because you're very safety conscious. There's this certificate that they have been inspected by a government authority that this is safe. That's good. Good, glad to see it. And then there's a girl who's there kind of operating the thing. And I say, so how long you been doing this? And she's been there all summer. No fatalities. Excellent. So she tells me, okay, so crawl in this harness and I'm going to buckle it around you and I'm going to hook it on to the cable and you're going to sit out here on the ledge and then I'm going to count to three and you're going to push off. Okay, so I sit down and she begins to count. One, two, three. I pushed off screaming bloody murder. But my screams of fear turned immediately to squeals of laughter. I mean, it was so much fun. If there wasn't such a long line, I would have done it again. You know, it's a little bit like the life of faith. We've got to put our full weight on the person of Jesus Christ. We have to push off with him. Have you ever done that? Or are you like the person I wanted to be, which was stand down at the bottom, <laughs> hang around people who had were living the life of faith, And perhaps if somebody had said, do you believe that those zip line, that those cables will hold you? I would have said, yes, of course I do. Is that you, that you're hanging around maybe people who have pushed off in the life of faith? And if somebody says, do you believe that Jesus can be trusted? And you would say, of course I do. And yet you've never put your full weight on him. You've never really pushed off in the life of faith. Won't you do that? Won't you take hold of him in that way today even? 
You know, the thing about that zip line was when I pushed off, you should have seen the grip I had on that cord that was holding on. You know, because I, I pushed off. You have the sense when you do that. It's up to me to hold on tight. And I'm not sure if I can. But quickly, pretty quickly, I realized it wasn't so much about my grip, but that actually those harnesses and cables, in a sense, had taken hold of me. That's where the security was. And it's the same way with the life of faith. We take hold of Christ and we push off thinking that it's up to us to hold on to him only to discover that he has taken hold of us. And that he's the one who will get us safely to the other side. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this ancient man named Job. He probably could have never imagined that 900 women in Belfast, Ireland would be focusing on his story, on his response of faith in regard to suffering. He couldn't imagine that his response ever would have mattered. And Lord, we have a hard time imagining that our response to faith could matter at all. Yet, Lord, we see that it does. Lord, we don't want to be women who are just going after you for what we can get from you. We want to be women who are confident in you who will love you no matter what. We want to be women who respond to loss in tears, yes, and yet what would flow out of our life would be worship, that we would respond as women who recognize we are stewards of all the gifts that you have given to us, as women who recognize that you send both good things and bad things and that you can be trusted with both. In your name we pray, amen.